This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, vampires and blood drinking with erotic overtones, depictions of human enslavement, degradation, and mind control, and allusions to rape, extreme misogyny, and other forms of violence. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 303. Hey there, Metamorphs! Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamorph City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, fresh off the writing desk. I also tell you what's new with my life and my writing. More on that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 44 in my Metamorph City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Miriam Bakhtavar, a powerful elder of the Psy Collective, has been captured by her arch-enemies, the Vampire Crime Syndicate. Malcolm Sion, a savage and brutal man called Braddock, has turned Miriam into a vampire, which means that she is forced to obey him through the power of the blood bond. Miriam cannot disobey Braddock or anyone in his direct line of vampiric descent, which means that she also cannot disobey his sire, Malcolm himself. Malcolm told Miriam that he has been keeping a wary eye on the telepaths, whom he considers a perversion of the natural order. Vampires were created to prey on humans, but with telepaths, the balance of power is reversed. A telepath can resist a vampire's domination powers, and can even use the psychic link of the sharing to attack a vampire's mind directly. Malcolm wants to make sure that this troublesome mutation in the livestock doesn't threaten his operations, so he commands Miriam to spy on the Collective, and report back to Braddock on what they're up to. Malcolm doesn't want a war with the telepaths, which would be destructive, wasteful, and above all, bad for business. He intends to use Miriam to keep the Collective off balance. He wants them paranoid enough that they don't try anything too risky, but not so paranoid that they launch a preemptive strike against the Syndicate. Malcolm presented Miriam with two gifts. The first was a thrall, a timid and wretched-looking half-elf, whose body is covered with bite scars. Miriam looked into the woman's mind and found it was virtually a blank slate. Whatever Malcolm did to her, it ravaged her psyche and left her with the barest shell of a personality. Malcolm told Miriam that the thrall no longer interested him, and she could do with it whatever she wished. Anything, that is, except setting it free. 
Malcolm's second gift was more intimate. He allowed Miriam to taste some of his blood. The blood of a master vampire is full of power, and drinking it filled Miriam with a sense of narcotic ecstasy. Serve me well, and you shall taste that power again, Malcolm told her. Fail me, and there will be punishment. Malcolm dismissed Miriam and sent her off to her new accommodations, accompanied by her new thrall and her sire, Braddock. Braddock took her to a large apartment further down in Valos Tower, and told her that she had better plan on getting some more thralls soon. The one Malcolm gave her may be healthy, but she won't last long as Miriam's only source of food. Miriam tried to subtly hurry Braddock into leaving, so she could start planning how she could help the thrall in the few remaining hours before dawn. Once the sun came up, Miriam planned to step out into the light and destroy herself. But Braddock sensed that his new fledgling was planning something. He commanded her to tell him what it was, and under the compulsion of the blood bond, she confessed to her plans for suicide. Braddock was enraged by this, which he considered a sign of Miriam's cowardice. He gave her a new command. She is forbidden to kill herself, and she's not allowed to let anyone else do it for her. Miriam fell into despair. They had her, and they weren't going to let her go. Not ever. Then, to drive home his complete possession of her, Braddock commanded Miriam to take off her clothes. She had no choice but to obey. Making the Cut A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 44 Mistress? Consciousness returned slowly to Miriam. She knew she was awake only because of the returning awareness of pain. Pain, and the reek of the various bodily fluids that covered her. Mistress, please get up. You need to feed. She didn't recognize the voice. It was female, and sounded timid and scared. Miriam hoped the woman she called mistress would answer her soon. Cold. So cold. Why is that? Her thoughts felt jumbled, sluggish, like she was swimming through molasses. She tried to focus, to re-engage her senses, or move her limbs, or do anything except lie there uselessly on the floor. But she couldn't seem to muster the energy. "'Gods, look what he's done to you,' the voice said, fretfully. A moment later, Miriam felt something warm and comforting drape itself over her naked body. A blanket, she supposed. Then gentle hands turned her over and rested her head in someone's lap. Instinctively, Miriam craned her neck and sniffed. She recognized the scent of the half-elven thrall. Her thrall and at last she realized that the woman had been speaking to her. One warm hand touched the side of Miriam's face. The smooth skin of a woman's wrist brushed her lips. "'Drink, mistress,' the thrall begged her. "'Please, drink.' 
Miriam's eyelids fluttered. She could hear the soft thrum of the woman's pulse in her wrist, and her stomach rumbled with a suddenly remembered hunger, but she still felt so weak, so listless, that she couldn't even summon the motivation to do anything about it. "'Gods,' the thrall whispered. She removed her wrist from Miriam's mouth and got up, carefully lowering Miriam's head to the floor. "'I'll be right back, mistress.' Miriam lay there and tried to remember what had happened to her. Something was very wrong with her body. She knew from the pain that she was badly damaged, and she was not healing as fast as she ought to be. At the same time, her injuries were not bleeding in the way she would have expected. She realized that her heart had stopped beating, and she wondered if that had something to do with it. A moment later, the smell of fresh blood filled the room. The thrall put Miriam's head in her lap again, then touched her wrist to Miriam's lips once more. The warm skin was wet with blood, oozing from a small incision. Immediately, Miriam lapped it up. A sudden jolt of energy shot through her body, and before she could even think about it, she had grabbed the woman's arm in both hands and was sucking on the wound like a child at her mother's breast. Awareness and memory flooded back to her. Braddock had used her savagely for hours. When she tried to resist him, he beat her or cut on her, expressing his displeasure in fits of almost childish rage. At first, she had healed as quickly as he could hurt her, so then he took her blood as well as her dignity. Eventually, she fell into torpor, too drained for her undead body to regenerate any further. He must have left after she ceased to be interesting. Miriam opened her eyes and looked up at the thrall. She smiled down at Miriam, looking relieved. "'It's all right, mistress,' she said, stroking Miriam's hair. "'Take as much as you need.' The woman's blood tasted so sweet. Miriam had tasted blood before when she was still alive, and it had never been anything like this. She supposed that her vampiric sense of taste had been altered— to crave what she needed to survive, in the same way that humans craved sugar. That thought disturbed her, and she wondered what other things might have changed without her realizing it. She forced herself to pull the thrall's arm away from her mouth. She focused her gaze on the half-elf's lilac eyes, then felt that strange bond of dominance and submission form between them. She had absolute control over this woman's life, as complete and inexorable as the power that Malcolm and Braddock had over Miriam herself. The thrall's mind welcomed that control, that dominance, spreading itself wide before her in unconditional surrender. She could ask anything of this woman, anything, and she wouldn't hesitate for a moment to obey her. Miriam closed her eyes and put up a psychic wall, breaking the link. "'What is your name, child?' she asked. Her voice was soft and hoarse. She felt a ripple of confusion from the woman. "'Mistress?' "'Your name,' Miriam said again. "'I didn't sense it when I touched your mind.' "'Oh,' the thrall said, sounding suddenly uncomfortable. "'Well, um, my name's not really important.' 
Miriam took the woman's hand in hers and squeezed it briefly. It is to me, she said. There was a long pause, so long that Miriam wondered if she had forgotten her name. Then she spoke in a timid whisper. Lena. My... my name was Lena. Miriam sat up and turned around to face Lena, wrapping the blanket more tightly around her. She still felt cold and sluggish, but her mind was clear again. She looked down at Lena's arm and saw that the bleeding had stopped, no doubt because of the coagulants in Miriam's saliva. You didn't drink enough, Lena said, sounding worried. Please, mistress, don't feel bad about taking more. Did you want to bite me somewhere else? The neck, maybe? Or down here? She brushed a hand over the inside of her thigh. Master Malcolm used to say the blood was sweeter down there. Miriam shook her head, bewildered. Why are you doing this? Why do you want me to bite you? Because you need to. And if you don't do it soon, you aren't going to be able to stop. Miriam glanced up at her briefly. Lena's eyes were haunted. Do it now, please, while you can still remember that you... that you cared what happened to me. Miriam had thought she couldn't feel any colder, but a fresh chill ran down her spine at the half-elf's words. It's that bad? she asked. Lena nodded. Sometimes a fledgling gets their first thrall, and they don't want to drink. They starve themselves for days, until the mind snaps and there's nothing left but the beast. She looked away. The thralls always die. Great maker, Miriam whispered. Lena looked up at her, then craned her neck to one side. Try doing it here, mistress, she said, pointing to the hollow just above her clavicle. The skin was marked with dozens of overlapping scars. It's all soft tissue, and there aren't any big arteries. It's the easiest place for a beginner. She turned around until her back was facing Miriam, then looked back over her shoulder. Here, you can take me from behind. That way you don't have to worry about holding me up. Miriam closed her eyes and sighed. It was all so surreal— sitting here with this young woman earnestly giving her lessons on the best way to take her blood. She wanted to get out of the room and hide somewhere, but she knew the hunger inside her wasn't going to go away. She imagined losing control of that hunger, waking up to find Lena's body on the floor, drained of its last drop of blood. She couldn't let that happen, and since Braddock had forbidden her to take her own life— there was only one way to prevent it. She got to her knees and came up behind Lena, placing her trembling hands on the half-elf's shoulders. I've never done this before, she said, then felt like a fool. Of course she hadn't done this before. Lena just gave her a little smile. It's okay. Your body knows what to do. Don't worry, I'll be fine. Miriam looked at the woman, with her collar and chain and her patchwork of scars, and wondered how on earth she could ever say that she was fine. But at the moment it didn't matter. Empty reassurance or not, 
Lena was freely offering what Miriam desperately needed, and the hunger inside told her that she could wait no longer. She pressed her mouth to the base of Lena's neck, in the spot the woman had shown her. She closed her eyes and breathed in the scent of her skin, listening as Lena's pulse began to quicken. She felt a surge of desire, and the uncanny sensation of her new fangs extending from the roof of her mouth. Then, with as much care as she could muster, she slowly slid them into Lena's flesh. Several things happened in quick succession. A set of muscles pulsed somewhere near her sinuses, injecting venom through the fangs and into Lena's body. The half-elf moaned in ecstasy and went limp in Miriam's arms. Carefully, Miriam withdrew her fangs, then covered the two wounds with her mouth. The blood welled up, but slowly, and Miriam found herself sucking at the wounds to draw more of that warm, sweet nectar into her mouth. An instant after that, the sharing began. And at last, Miriam understood. Then. A knock sounded at the door to Lena's office. She slid a bookmark into the medical journal she was reading, then put on her glasses and turned to the door. It's open, she called. Timothy burst in, waving a handful of printouts, a jubilant expression on his face. The whalish man was still in his lab coat and had his safety goggles hanging around his neck. The new test results just came in, he said, passing her the stack of paper. Lena pushed her glasses up onto her forehead and scanned through the printouts. Gods, she murmured, suddenly understanding the reason for her partner's excitement. Timothy, am I reading this right? The new Cranning assay is 97% accurate. Timothy said, grinning like a fool. The best arcane assays on the market come in at 99. Lena laughed. I'll take a 2% drop in accuracy for a 95% drop in cost. Gods be praised, Tim. This is going to help so many people. Impulsively, she leapt out of her chair and hugged him, planting a kiss on his neck. When she looked back at him again, he was blushing but his grin had gotten even wider. "'Time to contact the Red Spiral?' he asked. "'Hells yes!' Lena spread out the papers on her desk and took a closer look at the graphs and data tables. They had finally done it. After two years of work, they had an assay for Cranning Syndrome that was cheap, effective, and required no magic to function. A neurodegenerative disease caused by a defect in human chromosome 14 Cranning syndrome killed over a million people every year, mostly in developing nations. The disease could be treated successfully if it was caught early enough, but the magic assays that could detect it in the early stages were too expensive for many people to afford. Now that they had an affordable alternative, the International Red Spiral would be able to identify people at risk of developing the disease and provide treatment where it was most needed. Even better, they could identify carriers of Cranning Syndrome and make sure that they didn't pass the disease on to their children. We're really doing it, Tim, Lena said. We said we were going to change the world and we're doing it. Your mom would be proud, Lily, Tim said. He clapped a hand on her shoulder. Now get to work, Ms. CEO. 
unless you want me to handle the public relations. Gods forbid, Lena said, laughing. She reached over and ruffled his dark, curly hair. I want you to go back to the lab and tell the troops that we're going live with this immediately. This place is going to be swarming with reporters within 24 hours, and I want to make sure everybody's presentable. Tim chuckled. Got it. No t-shirts, no ratty jeans, and no scary piercings. Anything else? Yes, Lena said, dropping her voice into a sensual purr. Find us a good bottle of Sathmoran whiskey. I feel like celebrating tonight. Tim's dark eyes sparkled, and he gave Lena a mock salute. Aye, aye, ma'am. As you say it, it shall be done. As he left, Lena sat down at her computer to begin crafting the press release. Seraph Diagnostic Solutions was about to become very big news. Lena stepped into the parlor of Malcolm Ardvalos, blinking at the bright lights that bathed the all-white room. The investment tycoon and the Empire's third richest person rose from his throne-like chair as she entered. He smiled, captivating her with his handsome features and compelling eyes. Sarah Lena Greyhaven, Ardvalos said warmly, extending his hand. Thank you for agreeing to meet with me. She took his hand and shook it firmly. It's an honor, sir. He gestured at one of the couches. Please, have a seat. Can I interest you in some refreshment? Wine or tea, perhaps? Tea would be lovely, thank you. She sat down on the nearest couch and smoothed the fabric of her dress slacks. It was her best outfit, but Ardvalos's exquisitely tailored suit made her feel underdressed. One of Ardvalos's employees brought in the tea service and poured cups for both of them. When they were alone once more, Lena quirked an eyebrow at the man before her. So, to what do I owe this invitation, Mr. Ardvalos? He chuckled. Well, as you're no doubt aware, you've been in the news quite a bit lately, Miss Greyhaven. Seraph Diagnostic Solutions is being hailed all over the Empire as a pioneer in the field of medical technology. Now, as it happens, finding young pioneers and fostering their development is something of a specialty of mine. It seemed to me that it would behoove both of us if we were to sit down and talk about the possibilities for Seraph's future. He opened his briefcase and handed her a folder. Inside was a detailed plan for a business partnership between Seraph and one of Ardvalis's holding companies. He spent the next hour walking her through the details of the proposal, but the basic concept was simple. He would buy out Lena and Timothy's ownership of the company for the sum of 10 million marks each. They would stay on board as the president and head of research and development, respectively. They would be paid in salary and stock options, but Ardvalos would retain the controlling interest in the company. Manufacturing of Seraph's assay kits would be taken over by one of his other medical technology firms, which was better equipped for mass production, while Seraph would continue on primarily as an R&D firm. It was a very attractive package, one that would set Lena and Timothy for life. But as Ardvalos finished his presentation, one thing still nagged at Lena. These financial projections don't look right to me, she said, 
pointing at a table of estimated production and revenue over the next 20 years. Look here. In five years, you have our production increasing 30-fold, but the increase in revenue is almost 200-fold. Ardvalos peered at the table for a moment, then nodded. Ah, yes. There were a couple of reasons for that. One is simple economy of scale. We can manufacture your assay kits for a much smaller per-unit cost, because of our larger facilities. Yes, I can see that, Lena said, pointing at another table that showed the breakdown of gross revenue, expenses, and net profits. But the overhead isn't going down nearly that much. True, Ardvalos agreed. The revenue projections assume an average sale price of 100 marks for the assay kit. Lena's eyes widened. We were only planning to sell the kits for 20. It shouldn't cost more than 13 to make them. Probably no more than 10 with the kind of production facilities you're talking about. Yes, but the arcane assay kits currently being used for Cranning Syndrome sell for an average of 400 marks. We'll still be undercutting the market by a huge margin. Lena sat back in her seat and tried to keep the anger out of her voice. Mr. Ardvalos, a large percentage of the world's sufferers of Cranning Syndrome cannot afford the current assay kits. Even 20 marks is a substantial investment for these people. Setting the price at 100 would put it completely outside their means. He smiled and raised a finger. I anticipated this objection, and I have a counterpoint. He pulled out another folder and passed it to her. We're prepared to enter an exclusive partnership with the Church of Eternal Brotherhood to make these assay kits available at cost in developing nations. With the added efficiency of working through a single large distributor, we could meet the needs of all the major Cranning-afflicted regions, and still triple our per-unit profits on sales within the Empire and Quinardia. Lena frowned and took a closer look at the figures. They seem to add up, but... Mr. Ardvalos, I've got to be honest. I'm not really comfortable with tying the Cranning test to a single religious organization. I respect your right to your beliefs, sir, but I'm not a member of the CEB. I don't think I like the idea that people might have to listen to their proselytizing before they can be tested for the disease. Ardvalos's face darkened. Miss Greyhaven, you wound me. You would suggest that my faith would withhold medicine to compel people to convert? Even that mild admonishment was enough to make Lena want to cringe, but she raised her chin and held her ground. You have to admit that it will be a temptation for them. Every evangelistic religion uses charity as a tool for conversion. I'd prefer to work with a secular institution like the International Red Spiral— and let the religious charities partner with them if they want to help. Ardvalos grimaced. I have my own issues with the Red Spiral, I'm afraid. That organization has always been Akala's pet project. If you don't like working with religious charities, how can you trust a charity being run by a fallen goddess? Lena shrugged. She doesn't seem all that interested in getting people to worship her these days. Perhaps not but I still can't envision a working partnership between her organization and mine. Why? Lena asked. Because her followers used to hunt vampires for a living? 
You're kind of been protected for three hundred years. It's a little late to be holding grudges, don't you think? The room fell into sudden, deathly silence. Malcolm Ardvalos stared at her fixedly, his lips thinning as he pressed them tightly together. Lena could feel him trying to exert his will over her, but she kept her emotions under control and looked back at him steadily. I'm not a fool, Mr. Ardvalos, she said softly. I never go into a meeting without knowing who I'm dealing with. And the truth about you is not as well hidden as you'd like to believe. He paused a moment before speaking. You would do well to keep that to yourself. His voice was barely above a whisper, but the hint of menace was unmistakable. Lena got to her feet. I'm sorry, Mr. Ardvalos, but I'm afraid this isn't going to work. In my experience, threats rarely make for good business partnerships. She turned to go, but was stopped by a hand on her shoulder. She spun around, intending to slap him, but he just held the folders out to her with a grave expression. Forgive me, Miss Greyhaven. You caught me off guard, and I forgot my manners. Please, take the proposals and discuss them with your partner. There may be room for some flexibility in the particulars, provided that you don't wait too long to get back to me. He raised his eyebrows slightly. You aren't likely to get a better offer than this from anyone else. I hope you'll think on it before you give me a final answer. She said nothing, but she took the folders with her before walking out. Once she was inside the lift, she collapsed against the wall and took several long, heavy breaths. She reached inside her shirt and pulled out the amulet that she had purchased to protect herself against the vampire's domination gaze. The enchantment was supposed to be first-rate, made right here in Metamore City, and even then it almost hadn't been strong enough. No, she told herself. I don't care if he's offering me the world itself on a silver platter. Malcolm Ardvalos will get nothing from me. What do you mean they're pulling out? Just what it sounds like, Timothy said, sounding disgusted. Word got around that you snubbed Malcolm Ardvalos, and now the investors are spooked. He's warning all his buddies that you're an egomaniac who wants to save the world, but only if you get the credit for it. Says you're going to run the company right into the ground. And they bought that? He's Malcolm fucking Ardvalos, Lily. He could say that the sky is green and they'd believe it. She buried her head in her hands. Damn it, damn it, damn it. How much money do we have left? We can keep the doors open for another two months. We might stretch that to six if we close the lab and just keep the office staff. No, Lena said firmly. These people gave up their careers to join us. I'm not leaving them out in the cold. Tim crossed his arms. Then you'd better find us a new backer fast, Lena, because it's getting pretty damned cold in here already. Ring. Ring. Lena picked up the phone. Hello. Her voice sounded dead, even to her own ears. Hello, Miss Greyhaven. It's been a long time. What the fuck do you want, Ardvalos? 
the vampire tisked. Such language. Is that any way to talk to your new partner? New? Oh, my God, he didn't. He did, Ardvalos said, sounding pleased. Mr. Timothy Metropolis sold his 50% share in Seraph Diagnostic Solutions to me last night. He is now a salaried member of my staff. He can't sell unless I agree to it, Lena protested. Unless you are determined to be of unsound mind, or otherwise incompetent to continue your duties as CEO. Which, in Mr. Metropolis's judgment, you are. Now you could contest this matter in court. In spite of herself, Lena snorted. Yeah, right. Like I can afford a lawyer to go up against Malcolm Ardvalos. Or, he continued, we can discuss the disposition of our shared company. Obviously neither of us has a controlling interest, so we can either come to some sort of agreement on Seraph's future direction, or we can sell the company's assets at auction and go our separate ways. Lena's eyes fell to the ledger on her desk. Assets, she thought bitterly. We don't have enough left to cover the mortgage on the goddamned laboratory. The loss Ardvalos would sustain by dissolving the company would mean nothing to him, especially with their chief researcher already in his employment. For Lena, though, she'd be lucky to get out with the clothes on her back. She sighed. What sort of agreement did you have in mind? Lena looked down at the contract in front of her with a soul-sick dread. This isn't the deal we discussed last year. No, it's not, Ardvalos said gravely. I'm afraid the net worth of Seraph Diagnostic Solutions has declined rather dramatically since then. Most of what I'd set aside for your compensation package will be needed just to make the company financially solvent again. Of course. She scanned down through the clauses and subclauses, taking it in. You're bringing in a new chief executive. Yes, a caretaker. Mr. Metropolis fears that your business acumen is somewhat lacking, and sadly, recent events seem to confirm that assessment. Please understand, I'm not firing you. You'll still receive a salary and a very generous benefits package. I'm just shifting you over to a new position so we can train you in our corporate culture. She looked down at the paper again. And what does an executive assistant do, Mr. Ardvalos? He smiled, his teeth glistening in the too bright light of his parlor. The job has a wide variety of potential responsibilities. You'll find that it's in your best interests to remain flexible. A chill ran down her spine. How flexible. The vampire cocked his head and looked at her, considering. Your coloration is really quite extraordinary, Miss Greyhaven. You're not Sylvan, are you? She raised her chin and looked back at him. She knew it was coming, but she would not be ashamed of her heritage. No. My mother was human. My father is a moon elf. He let out a low whistle. A moon elf half-breed. You don't see too many of those anymore. We were never what you might call common, Lena said coolly. 
The moon elves have always been more discriminating than their brothers to the south. Ardvalos chuckled. So I have heard. He leaned forward and lowered his voice. I've also heard that their blood is as sweet as ice wine. I'd like very much to find out if that's true. There it was. Like a fool, she'd insulted a vampire prince, and now he wanted his revenge. He'd already taken her company, her life's work, her partner, even her reputation, and still it wasn't enough. He had to take her body as well. She stared at the contract for what felt like a long time. If I do this, she said, I want your word that my employees will be protected. Guaranteed positions and salary for the next ten years. Full severance for any who opt out. And no turning any of them into your blood puppets. You want your revenge on me? Fine. But you don't take it out on my people. Malcolm Ardvalos smiled. Done. Mr. Metropolis already asked for much the same thing as a condition of his employment. I'll show you the agreement I signed with him. If there's anything else you feel a need to add, name it, and we'll include it on an addendum. She nodded once. Then let's get it over with. Get your lawyer in here with that agreement. Then I'll sign your goddamned contract. And that's the end of Chapter 44. Come back next time, as Miriam, Daniel, Danny, and Fiona all begin making plans for their future. Hey there, listeners. This episode is already running long, and I'm trying to rebuild my buffer, so we're going to skip the weekly writing report for this week. Come back next time and I'll let you know how things have been going. For all my listeners in the U.S., I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.